Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. The reason we wanted to do this show is because you hear a lot of people talking about it or like there's a podcast, right? They'll do a show like once about the opioid crisis. And like we say, it's sort of like a drive-by, but we like are doing a 26-episode deep dive on this. You know, there's so many aspects to it that need to be explored. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us this Friday. We are going to talk about the news of the week, including what's going on in Syria, what's happening with impeachment. And by listener request, we're going to just dip our toes into the controversy around Ellen and George W. Bush and this whole kerfuffle about Elizabeth Warren's story that she was fired for being pregnant. Hear the hesitation in best voice. Yes. These are not my favorite kinds of stories, but I love you all and we will do it for you. 
Before we jump into that and then share with you an interview with Stephanie Whittles-Wax about her new podcast, Last Day, that takes a very hard and personal look at the opioid epidemic, we want to let you know that if you've not been able to find us in person, you can find us online. Next week, we are doing an event with the Center for the Study of Liberty in a webinar where we'll be talking about our book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversation. The link to register for that event will be in the show notes. And of course, We would love to see you in Dallas or Washington, D.C. on our Nuance Nation tour. You can find that information in the show notes as well. So it has been a hard news week this week. We have thousands of people, including, I'm sure, many of our listeners without power and having to evacuate in California. We have a shooting in Germany outside a synagogue on Yom Kippur. And we're learning that 16 police officers were involved in covering up the shooting of Laquan McDonald. And we also had the arguments with regards to LGBTQ people and employment discrimination before the Supreme Court. And that's before we even get to the two big stories of what's going on in Syria and impeachment. So let's all just take a moment to acknowledge that it's a lot. It's a lot. And so many of these stories are so personal that Mm -hmm. I think everyone is a little bit raw right now for different reasons. And it's important to just you know, hold some rain around that. Let's talk about Syria because we've gotten a number of messages from people saying, can y'all just break this down for us? And so we'll try to do that as quickly as we can here. A small group of U.S. troops, like 50 to 100 troops, have been keeping peace between Syrian Kurds and the government of Turkey. And on Sunday, President Trump suddenly and surprisingly to most of the U.S. government, as best I can tell, pulled those troops out of Turkey's way. He touted it as fulfilling campaign promises to stop endless wars, uh, but no one's actually coming home. Those troops have just been relocated, and the situation is much more complicated than that. So the background is the Kurdish people do not have a country. They are a people group. They have a language and a culture, but they don't have territory just inside of one country. They span Turkey, Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Armenia. And they have hoped for a long time to have their own country. After World War I, it looked like they might. There was plans to create a Kurdistan. But a treaty was reached later that created modern Turkey and made no provision for the Kurds. So this is a lot of people. The Kurds are the fourth largest ethnic group in the Middle East, but they are a minority group in every single country they live in, and they've been treated horribly in all of those countries. In Turkey, they have had their costumes and names banned. Their language has been restricted. In response to oppression from the Turkish government, the Kurdistan Workers' Party was established, the PKK, and that started a violent separatist movement. More than 40,000 people have died in armed struggles between the government of Turkey and this separatist movement. The United States considers the PKK a terrorist organization. A ceasefire in that conflict was reached in the 90s, but ISIS bombings caused that to fall apart. And so Turkey is at war with the PKK and with ISIS. We'll get back to ISIS in a second. In Syria, Kurds have been denied citizenship and had land taken from them. In Iraq, they've been forcibly relocated and subjected to chemical attacks. Their oil-rich land was taken by the Iraqi government. But despite all of this oppression in all of the countries that the Kurdish people's territory touches, the Kurdish people have been enormously helpful 
in the battle against ISIS. So I think before we move on to the importance of the Kurds as an ally in the fight against ISIS, it's easy to think, well, if it's only 50 to 100 soldiers, what's the big deal? Surely these 50 to 100 soldiers weren't holding back the whole of the Turkish army who really want to get in there and clear space for their own refugee problem and fight back up against this ethnic group that they have historically fought and discriminated against. But it's a symbolic presence as well. It says that you're both our allies, which is absolutely a hard needle to thread. And maybe we haven't always done that successfully. But that presence says to Turkey, you may not come in here and act indiscriminately. We are here. We are watching. They are our allies, too. And so while it is a small presence, I've heard Rand Paul repeatedly sort of blow it off as, oh, the War Caucus is is so ex- upset over a few 50 to 100 soldiers. But it's not just about the soldiers. That you're both our allies happened because ISIS was interested in territory in Syria that was occupied by Kurdish people. And mm-hmm. Kurdish fighters, part of the People's Protection Units, or YPG, if you're seeing that um, acronym, stepped up to fight ISIS, and they fought ISIS in Iraq as well. And then in 2014, when ISIS was really on the rise, and the United States leads this multinational coalition, 81 countries, to start fighting ISIS in northern Iraq, Kurdish fighters came to this coalition's aid, and it occurred to everyone that Kurdish fighters were really the best people to lead these fights against ISIS. And part of the reason that the United States has felt so successful in the fight against ISIS is because we haven't lost a lot of troops. And that is in part because Kurdish fighters have really been on the front lines. Now, Turkey is part of that coalition of 81 countries, as Sarah was saying. But the whole time we've had this problem of Turkey's hostility to the YPG, which was working with the United States and the coalition. In September of 2014, this started coming to a head when ISIS launched an assault against the Kurdish people in Kobane, Syria. When that happened, Turkey refused to attack ISIS or to allow Turkish Kurds to cross the border to defend Kobane, which is very close to the border. So Kurdish fighters joined the Syrian Democratic Forces Alliance. And there's a lot of backstory about that name and about almost a branding component of this whole situation. But those fighters, as part of the Syrian Democratic Forces, drove ISIS out of northeastern Syria and established control over a big stretch of territory on the border with Turkey. And Turkey was furious about Kurdish power growing, even as that Kurdish power was being used to defeat ISIS. And in March 2019, they captured Raqqa, which ISIS viewed as its capital, which was really the last pocket of territory. That's when you have people start to say ISIS has been just completely defeated. Now, no one there on the ground has said ISIS has been completely defeated. They've said, look, there are still people. There is still an undercurrent here that is dangerous. But the caliphate has basically been destroyed. And since then, the world has not been helpful to the Kurdish people. So the Syrian Democratic Forces have captured thousands of suspected ISIS militants and women and children associated with them. And the home countries of those people won't take them back. And Turkey has just been itching to get in and kind of destroy this Kurdish power that emerged in Syria because 
there are still Kurds in Turkey as well that the Turkey government wants to get rid of. And Syrians, I would imagine. Yes. And so the Kurds are still dealing with the Syrian government, which is backed by Russia. It wants this territory. And Turkey says it wants to set up a 20-mile safe zone in northeastern Syria to protect its border and resettle about 2 million Syrian refugees. Mm -hmm. And so when President Trump announces that our 50 to 100 forces, who, as Sarah said so well, have been standing there to say, this is not acceptable to us. It led on Wednesday to Turkish forces beginning an air and ground assault. By Thursday morning, there had been 181 airstrikes conducted by Turkey in this part of northern Syria. And the Turkish government had used cranes to remove parts of a concrete border wall so that its troops could start coming in on the ground. And Turkey is backing Syrian Arab fighters to take over Kurdish villages it's awful, and people are very, very scared. So why would he do this? Well, he has a history of business deals in Turkey. He has a Trump Tower in Istanbul. And so my personal opinion is that he got on the phone with Erdogan on Sunday, talked with his buddy who he has history with, saw, oh, well, this is one of my wins I can proclaim as he has continued all this week that I'm bringing an end to these endless wars I can get a win. I can make my former business deal friend happy. And since I only work transactionally to my own priorities and benefits and don't listen to my national intelligence experts, the military, or think about the United States interest, this is a win-win. And I, he seemed legitimately surprised by the blowback. I do not see how that was possible. I think it's because he doesn't understand the region. You know, yeah. I'm not sure that... Well, let me say it this way. I'm not sure that any of us in the United States have ever thought much about the Kurds, and now we have this outcry on their behalf. We really have been transactional in our approach with them since 2014. We were trying to have it both ways by saying, oh, the Kurds within Turkey are terrorists, but the Kurds here uh -huh. in Syria can, and in Iraq can be our partners. And that's been a problem for a long time. And I am certain that people on the ground have been navigating that problem for a long time. I cannot imagine what it must feel like for someone who's been on the ground there to have a tweet sent with such an absence of understanding about what that tweet would mean. And suddenly to see, I mean, the, the coalition deleted a tweet saying we've been ordered by the United States not to help our former friends and allies, the Kurds. This has to be incredibly painful for people there. I don't think there's ever a good answer in Syria. I don't think anything in Syria is ever just obvious. But this feels less like a strategic military decision and more like you are standing at the door of someone's house knowing that that house will be burned down if you move and for reasons that are completely personal and with absolute disregard for that house, you step aside and wave in the arsonist. You know, it, this doesn't feel like military strategy as much as knowingly inviting the deaths of so many people who've been assisting our country in a very important fight. You know, he only thinks about himself. He only trusts himself. And... In what seems like an excellent transition to our next topic of impeachment, he gets on the phone call 
He gets on a phone call with foreign leaders, does not listen to experts, does not think about the United States interest at home or abroad, and makes really bad decisions because he's not thinking broadly about our country. He's only thinking about his priorities and his interests. And I desperately hope that Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, people who have spoken out with him more forcefully than I've ever seen them do before, understand the deal that they've made. Understand that it is not a good deal, (laughs) that you can think you're a close advisor all you want, but this man doesn't listen to anyone. And you can think you're getting what you want most of the time and it's worth it the rest of the time. But it seems like we've maybe finally crossed a line where they realize it's not worth it. Now, do I think this means they're going to vote for impeachment tomorrow? No. But, you know, as we start talking about impeachment, I think this story, this narrative that he got on the phone with a foreign leader, went against the military, then even the Republicans are upset with him, is shockingly short-sighted when it comes to impeachment. Like, how could you think that this narrative coming so soon, right in the midst of an impeachment inquiry into your phone call with the foreign leader where you were perpetuating your own interest in the absence of advice from national intelligence military officials is going to look good. (laughs) It is mind-blowing to me. Mind-blowing. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon-priced manicure, Olive & June has you covered. We've talked about Olive & June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon-grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive & June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive & June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, 
Regency-era historical fiction and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. May I say one more thing about this before we move on to impeachment? And maybe this is also related. I think this situation so illustrates the danger of the president in the executive role because Congress's remedy that it's talking about on a bipartisan basis is a bill that would sanction Turkey for this behavior. But money and people are different things. So Trump waves Turkey in, Turkey gets what it wants, and it kills all these people, and then it hurts its economy. And Turkey cares to some extent about that, I'm sure, but maybe it decides it cares more about eradicating the Kurds. And Congress comforting itself that it's hurting Turkey's economy, the president comforting himself that he's punishing Turkey economically is different than all of these people. We know at least 16 people and one child have already died from these Turkish strikes, and we can't fix that with sanctions. And so I hope no one's comforting themselves or patting themselves on the back too much about the idea of these sanctions, because that doesn't change what's happening on the ground there. So the blowback from the Syrian decision was not the only thing the Trump administration was dealing with this week. As we mentioned, they're in the middle of the impeachment inquiry. And the new strategy is no cooperation, stonewalling at any cost. And they're arguing that it's because the House hasn't voted on the impeachment inquiry yet. And they're insisting that since this this is the process they followed with Nixon and Clinton, that they're just being treated so unfairly and that if the House voted on an impeachment inquiry, a full vote in the House, then they would feel so much better about the process. And I'm sure then they would just be turning over documents left and right. Don't you think, Beth? Mm, I'm positive. I'm unclear about what would change if the House voted to give this impeachment inquiry a green light, because we talked about this when when Nancy Pelosi announced the impeachment inquiry. 
you know, the speaker's support of the impeachment inquiry has been very significant from a public relations perspective. It has certainly driven the president crazy. But these committees have oversight power with or without that announcement. They're continuing the work they were doing before the announcement. They're sending subpoenas under rules that Republicans rewrote in 2015, giving individual chair people of committees the right to send subpoenas without the approval of the full House. And Mm. so I'm just not sure from a legal or tactical perspective what the White House thinks is so magical about a vote here. Well, cynically, I know the answer. The answer is once we have everybody on the record and it falls down to a partisan vote, and then they can make that the talking point. And then they will have a vote on record proof that this is just a partisan witch hunt. Yeah. And I just want to get out of the messaging aspect of all of this and really get to the substance. And I think substantively, calling this an impeachment inquiry was very smart on Speaker Pelosi's part because it started changing public perceptions and attitudes. And it started Mm -hmm. really freaking this White House out so much so that it's making even more mistakes. But we want Congress to be able to conduct these investigations, whether it is under the umbrella of an impeachment inquiry or not. And that said, you know, hold the vote, whatever. Like, I just I'm ready to just get on with all of this. Apparently, the president is calling Mitch McConnell about three times a day talking about Republican <laughs> unity. He's tweeting there is up a justice storm in the world. There is justice in the world. And I don't want to lose sight of something that developed on Wednesday night because we don't know these names. It's easy to minimize this story. But. When Kurt Volker, who was our kind of special representative in Ukraine, and you can learn a lot more about him on the Nightly Nuance this week, but Kurt Volker testified for nine and a half hours before the Intelligence Committee in the House. And in that testimony, the the public statement that has been released, we don't have a transcript yet, he described a meeting with Rudy Giuliani where he wanted to sit down with Rudy Giuliani and say, hey, Rudy, it would be amazing if you could stop pumping garbage into the president's head about Joe Biden and about Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election, because I'm working really hard to forge a productive relationship between the new president of Ukraine and President Trump. And I'm not getting anywhere because he's listening to you all the time. I'm paraphrasing. Okay. So when he goes to have that meeting, Rudy Giuliani shows up with Lev Parnas. And Lev Parnas is one of several Soviet-born Ukrainians who are now American citizens who do business in, of all places, South Florida. Not surprised. And have played golf at Mar-a-Lago and all the things. And Lev Parnas and Igor Freeman are seemingly the people who have really encouraged Rudy Giuliani to pursue this line of inquiry about Ukraine. So the guy that goes to the meeting with Giuliani, with Kurt Volker, got arrested Wednesday night on campaign finance violations. Love it. And these gentlemen are represented by none other than John Dowd, who represented I Donald mean. Trump in the Mueller investigation. <sighs> so we just have to keep an eye on everything because it's a lot. <laughs> All signs point to corruption. All signs point to corruption. Well, this is the point that I just keep returning to. Like, what's happening right now that seems out of character for this president? Right. Not a thing. I'm sure... I bet Rachel Maddow's having a 
10 times the fun with that most recent development. That seems like something she would really lean forward on her desk and be like, see? (laughs) (laughs) So moving on to the things that I don't love talking about, but that y'all really want us to talk about, and I respect that. The first thing everybody wanted us to talk about was conservative media doing this really delightful gotcha dance with Elizabeth Warren, where they found her many years ago speaking about one of her early teaching jobs and not describing being fired for being pregnant, which is a massive part of her sort of stump speech biography now. And she issued a incredibly, in my opinion, believable explanation, which was, yeah, I wasn't comfortable describing it like that. It was really hard. And as I sort of came to realize really what happened, I started to speak openly and honestly about it. It really reminds me of a development in my own life and story. I took the bar to gain my law license approximately like two and a half months after Griffin was born. And so I was breastfeeding every couple hours. And I failed a portion of that bar exam. I retook it. I passed. I, you know, I did. I had the baby there. My mom would bring Griffin down like at the breaks, but I was still just engorged by the end of every section. And then like a few years later, a woman sued to get a breastfeeding break. And I thought, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I should have had a breastfeeding break. Like I shouldn't have had to sit there in pain trying to take this exam I should have pushed for, like, sort. I was being discriminated against, right? As a new nursing mother, I was being put in a position I should not have. And I think I had told myself, like, I failed in part because I had a new baby and it was hard to study and all this stuff. But then I'm like, and I'm not saying, you know, I can't prove definitively, like, oh, my gosh, if I'd had those breaks, it would have turned out differently. But it's just, you know, as you grow and you you gain consciousness and you look back at events in your own life and you think, Oh, yeah, man, especially as newer generations come along and push for even more fair treatment. Although, spoiler alert, we have not fixed this whole people not being hired or fired because they're pregnant thing. You just see everything that happened to you with new light. So this feels like a nothing burger to me, but I'm not unbiased when it comes to her, obviously, or the subject matter for that matter. I feel somewhat unbiased when it comes to Elizabeth Warren. And I just look at this story and think the pickiness about the precision of the language is so divorced Mm. from the reality of how people feel in their jobs because so often the difference between I was fired and I was asked to resign or I was made so uncomfortable that I felt that I had no choice but to go or I was pushed out those lines are very thin Mm-hmm. And very often the worst discrimination is taking place in circumstances where an organization is not going to make that explicit you're fired decision, but they are going to make it clear that you are unwanted. And being unwanted at a job is one of the most sickening feelings imaginable, especially when you're pregnant. And so I just feel a huge sense of grace around anyone telling a story like this, because I think it is often true to say I I was fired, even though someone maybe didn't sit down and give you a severance package. Mm-hmm. I also think this harkens back to conversations we had when the whole Brian Williams issue broke out, like 
precision about our memories is hard because we are Mm -hmm. constantly in the process of not only kind of holding on to and refining our memories, but making meaning of them. And so I imagine everybody out on the campaign trail has told a story so many times that that story has shifted in some ways and taken on a life that is a little bit different than the facts that occurred at a particular moment. And I'm not sure that that's lying or being misleading. I think that's just what a human brain does. Honestly, Sarah and I go talk to people so often now together that there are times when I think, wait, is this my memory or Sarah's memory? I'm not sure. Mm. I've heard this story so many times. Have I adopted it as my own, even though it's not? I mean, I just think our brains do difficult things to us and that we don't necessarily have malicious intent when that happens. And so all the way around this, especially knowing that, as you said, Sarah, still in so many companies, there's this attitude that we're doing you a favor if we give you time off when you're pregnant. I don't have one quibble with what she's talking about. To your point about story shifting, I honestly think it's more creepy if they don't. Mm -hmm. There's a story about John Edwards that he tells like almost word for word the story about his son's death. And John Kerry's very struck by it and affected him. And he he, he witnesses him telling the story word for word almost the exact same way to somebody else. Like, that's creepy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want that. I don't want you to tell a traumatic event about your life in a very scripted way. Like, if something really affected you, then as you age and as you develop and as you tell the story and think about it and you hear other people's story, it should shift. The one thing I want to say about that, and I'm not a psychologist, but I think that's somewhat common about stories of deep trauma. I think it might be protective in some way. I do that with my car accident. If if someone Mm. asks me what happens, they will get, I bet, within a deviation of like 10 words of how I've told that story every other time. I I am incapable of telling it a different way. And everything I've read about people who've survived car accidents that had a that had a death involved in them, that's really common. Like You just tend to go to that language because maybe it's the only language your brain is able to handle. So I don't know. There's a lot going on with the way that we tell and experience and sort of inhabit the stories of our lives. And that's why I think, like, find something new to write about Elizabeth Warren. This is garbage. Okay, Beth, are you ready to talk about George Bush and Ellen? As ready as I'm going to be. Do you want to take breaths? Okay. here's my first thing. I appreciate that people think that this is in our wheelhouse, but I'm going to really push back. This is not two people in a family relationship with differing views of politics. The This is two people of enormous power and prestige and wealth. So I quibble very much with the framing of the story of, oh, my gosh, Americans can't be friends with people different from them. That's not what's happening here (laughs) with love. That's not what's happening here. And for Ellen, one of the richest and most powerful women in media to frame her friendship with an ex-president as, man, we just can't we have to be friends with people that are different than us is disingenuous, in my personal opinion. So Ellen is not only one of the richest and most powerful women in media, she's also someone who's broken tremendous ground in this country for the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. And what I struggle with in this entire conversation is how much water Ellen has to carry by herself. True. And how many people who have no experience, not even close, to what Ellen has dealt with, 
people like me, right, who are not part of the LGBT community, just people who want to be allies. For so many of us to be so critical of this woman who has done enough by the measure of almost any life drives me crazy. I don't know. I struggle, though, because I think, first of all, their timing sucked. I mean, you're talking about a woman who has broke so much ground for LGBTQ people, who is seen as a symbol of that community during the week of the Supreme Court argument about employment discrimination against gay people before two justices appointed by the man she was sitting next to who knew, who knew where they stood. You know, so also, you know, I think that's sort of the the accelerant on this whole thing. Sure, but that is an accelerant within that community. I think not one for people outside of that community. Like, we can have those thoughts and consider it, but it feels really wrong to me as a person who is married to a man and born the gender that I identify with to be lecturing Ellen, who has done so much good in that space, about where she sits at a football game. Right, but am I al- if I'm an ally, am I al- allying myself with people in the gay community who are hurt by that decision? Am I saying, I see it. I see why they're upset. And I understand. I, I can't understand what it's like to be gay, but I sure as heck understand why they're mad. Yeah, I think that's different from becoming a Twitter warrior on my own right or getting really excited about other people doing that. I mean, the big the big thing to me about this whole situation that feels different is that there wasn't anything transactional happening here. Ellen did not sit next to George W. Bush to increase her profile. She already has arguably a bigger profile than he does. So I hear her when she says, can I not just go to a football game and and sit by the guest of the people who invited me without starting this whole firestorm? I also understand why it upsets people. I just think we're dealing with that frustration in an incredibly unproductive way, instead of kind of standing back to say, what does it mean to be an ally here? Which that's a great question. What does it mean to be an ally here? I don't know. Other than sometimes I think being an ally means shutting your mouth and listening to people more affected by a situation than you are and encouraging them the best you can in the way that they care about most. And I feel like instead there's this whole rush to just perform for the world I think this is wrong because I'm such a great ally. And that not that more about you than about the people actually hurt by photos like this? In part, what people are reacting to is not the transactional nature of this, but it's the same reason people are mad at Jimmy Fallon for roughing up Donald Trump's hair. For better or for worse, Ellen DeGeneres has an enormous amount of cultural power. And so... Unfortunately, much of that trade-off is you don't the, the cultural power doesn't end when you walk off your stage. The decisions you make in your personal life are going to affect that cultural power as well, right? And so there has been, look, I participate in it. I giggle about George Bush saying that was some weird shit at Trump's inauguration. We all love Michelle Obama sitting next to George Bush and exchanging mints. And there has been this this movement to 
normalize him, to to sort of warm him up, to see him as very differently than we all saw him when he was president, right? And so I think people are reacting to someone like Ellen when when the when the contrast of his decisions while he was president are so clearly contrasted with her particular identity, political issue, whatever. And and people are like, what the heck? You know, I don't know if it was just a bridge to cross because you didn't see as much blowback, obviously, with Michelle Obama and George W. Bush. The real answer to me is it's different sides of the same coin, right? When you're speaking of, you know, the water that Ellen carries, is there a point in which it doesn't matter what she's done? She's done enough good that nothing can undo that. Nothing. She can't do anything wrong. And the reverse is also true of George W. Bush. Has he done enough bad that no matter what happens in his life as an ex-president, nothing can undo that, right? That's what these two people came up against and when they sit next to at that football game. And that's what everybody's exercising when they look at those two people sitting t- together, right? Can you do enough good on an issue that anything you do after that doesn't matter? And can you make enough terrible bad decisions and have enough terrible, awful impact on the world that everything you do after that can undo it, right? I mean, I think that's what we're really exercising when we look at those two sitting next to each other. And I just think that's an unfair exercise. I think that's asking too much of both of those people in this context, because then we are saddling them with either the best or the worst decisions of their lives. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing. We're ask- And we're asking them to carry that for the whole country. And and part of why I just didn't even want to talk about this story is because the whole country has so many things we need to be working out right now that neither of these people have much to contribute to. And this feels like a shortcut for our brains to me, a way for us to just continue to be fighting the old battles instead of facing what is in front of us and trying to make some decisions about what we do from here. It's just so much easier to be like, team, can't we all get along? Or warrior for every type of oppression that's ever taken place in the history of the world. And those spaces are not serving us well right now. And I just, I don't know. I I wish that we could look at that situation and say it is complicated. Those photographs were probably hurt to many people that we care about. There are enormous issues of class and privilege tied up in this Mm -hmm. entire discussion. And also, this is probably not the place to work all of that out. Yeah, I think it's hard because when you say that's an enormous amount to saddle them with, you know, even my own brain goes, oh, I think an ex-president and a multi-billionaire can handle it. You know what I mean? Like there is so much class and privilege on top of their political backgrounds. And I think that's sort of what made people mad, too. It felt like, you know, whether you're on the right or particularly if on the left, you're telling me that this other side is the enemy and they're out to get me. But it seems like maybe if I get rich enough, we'll all be friends. Right. And I think that's what people reacted to, too. And I, can, I don't blame them. Because it does feel a little bit like that. It's a peek into a world where all the rest of us are leaving our Thanksgiving table and shutting out our families and, you know, being those cultural warriors and making really tough relationship choices, getting angry at people we love 
And then there's this other world where Ivanka's hanging out at the Hamptons with all these, you know, Silicon Valley billionaires who perpetuate liberal values. And George W. Bush and Ellen are kicking it at the $1,000 boxes at a football game. And so maybe this 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 scenario we the rest of us have been presented with that the other side is the enemy and we have to make choices and not speak to one another again doesn't apply at the very top. I just wish it didn't apply to us. I don't think it serves us to be cutting off our family members. For those of us for whom it is not an issue of safety and dignity, let me make that distinction clear. Sarah says all the time so well, some people are called to be safe and that's it. So where that is an issue of safety and dignity for you, do what you need to do. For those of us not in that situation, just irritated and heartbroken with each other, but unwilling to continue that work, I would rather have the example of an ex-president and a a former president and a multi-billionaire sitting together at a football game than not. The whole framing of this has not served us well at any level. And I don't want to be taking my cues from them, but here we are, you know? And so Mm -hmm. if we're going to, yes, I prefer Ellen's framing of the situation to the sense that we just have to cut people off because of their positions and the way that they've exercised their power. I don't think those are our only choices. I mean, I think the reason that this fired up the way it did is because she is gay. So it's not as simple as just a partisan team jersey, right? It's because it is an issue of identity where people had to exit their families because they felt unsafe. And for her to to sit next to him, I'm not saying she shouldn't have done it, but I think the way she spoke about it was disingenuous. To say he's just my pal and not to acknowledge the impact of his choices as president on a community that feels very represented by her and that she of which she is a member to not acknowledge their power and influence and wealth to not say like, hey, we're not just buddies. We're people with a lot of power. I mean, I'm not saying I know exactly how she should have spoken about it, but I think to basically shame everyone and say, hey, I can be friends. We can all be friends across the political divide was was really really short-sighted and made it worse because it felt like she was, oh, like sort of talking down to people like, oh, come on, you guys. Like, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's not a fair representation of what people were reacting to. Well, and I think that my point is just that the same is true of a lot of where the criticism is coming from. There's disingenuousness and oversimplification in Mm. the response to it from both Ellen and all the people who are celebrating this, as well as from some of the people who have criticized it so strongly. We're going to jump from one, you know, really easy conversation into another as we talk with Stephanie Whittleswax, the host of Last Day, about very personal experiences with opioid addiction. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. 
Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We're so delighted to be joined today by Stephanie Whittles-Wax, the host of Last Day and co-founder of Lemonada Media. Stephanie, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for having me. Stephanie, as we get into the 2020 presidential race, especially as impeachment occupies all the air, as it as it does. Does it? I, I, I wasn't uh-huh. seeing that. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. interesting, interesting. <laughs> it seems like... Really important issues like addiction, like the opioid crisis, can get lost. And what I think is so powerful about Last Day is that you are taking personal stories to 
put a emphasis, a better understanding, and really just a prioritization on this incredibly important issue. So tell us how you how this journey led you to make this podcast. Just to start, I want to just sort of talk about this issue you just brought up about the election looming. And, you know, I in terms of it getting lost, I feel like sort of what's happening is the opposite. I hear candidates using it as a buzzword almost, like a talking point, and then not really having any idea what it's going to take to address it. And so part of what we want to do with Last Day is to educate people about how to approach the opioid crisis, to create a space where we're talking openly about it for people who are dealing with it, for people who you know, have addictions themselves or love somebody who is dealing with this, um, and to really make a space where we are reframing the issue as being something about willpower or uh, moral failing, taking it out of that and putting it into a medical framework where we are really establishing that this is a an acquired disease of the brain and that in terms of that, it has to be dealt with as such. So with any sort of disease that we talk about, with any sort of epidemic, you know, look at HIV, for example, the way that we ended up making change finally in the HIV epidemic was finally putting some money and policy behind it. And the same thing is going to have to have to happen with the opioid crisis. You can't have politicians who are just blah, 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 opioids, you know, and then and then continuing to cut Medicaid and continuing to not want to fund this you know, it's going to take some real work to to make it happen. Does it feel like to you that we were so behind? We were so behind in even acknowledging it as a crisis mm-hmm. that politicians even speaking the word out loud and acknowledging that it's a problem feels like forward movement. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's the kind of thing where, you know, since 1999, this is a staggering statistic. And the show, like, is very much not in the world or the realm of statistics. The show is about humanizing this. But I need to just put it out there that 400,000 people have died of opioid overdoses since 1999. Holy crap. Yeah. I mean, when you hear that, you're like, wait, what? It's killing more people now than car accidents. In 2017, which is the last statistics we have, we had 72,000 total drug overdoses, and of those, around 54,000 were opioid-related. And if you look at the the charts and the graphs, and listen, I'm not a chart or a graph person. Like, I'm an art person, so <laughs> math is hard. But I can see something going up. I acknowledge there's a line that's going up. And it it has been steadily increasing every single year since 1999. There was a slight dip uh, a 5% drop in deaths in 2018 for the first time. But we're not sure yet what exactly that can be attributed to. And something that's happening is that, you know, people are realizing realizing this is a this is an epidemic. We need to be monitoring the prescription drug, prescription drugs, essentially. And there's all these databases that that, that hospitals are working with to try to track prescriptions. But what happens is that If you cut somebody off of one supply and they're already addicted, they're going to go find it elsewhere. So we've got this this drop in perhaps prescription opioid related deaths, but then there's a rise in heroin and fentanyl on the street. So, you know, like the whole issue with the podcast is that it's a really complicated issue and 
if we're going to like make any movement, we have to uh, like ad- address it from from every single angle. There's not one like magic silver silver bullet here. I think you made such a good choice in the second episode to include this clip of one of the people that you're telling us an important story about giving like a presentation in an office that this Mm. person who ultimately dies from addiction sounds so strikingly normal in that clip that you include. And I think it really puts a face to the statistic that we don't often associate with this statistic. Steph and Jennifer had their weekly one-on-one meeting the morning that he died. I don't know if I should say this, but I think there's certain one-on-ones that you sort of dread going into, and then there's the one-on-ones that you look forward to. And my one-on-ones with him, I always looked forward to them. That day, I remember what he was wearing. Like, he looked extra nice that day. I think a customer was coming in to the office, and so, like, he looked extra professional and, like, had a suit on, which normally we would wear, like, jeans and, a you know, a polo. Yeah. Um, So he looked... Very professional, very cleaned up. You know, we sat down, and, like, he seemed happy. He brought up the possibility of a promotion, even though it was maybe eight months since his last one. He was looking to the future, making plans. So can you talk a little bit about all the types of people that you talked with in making this podcast and how you are trying to make sure that you're offering a more complete picture than we we get sometimes in just regular media reporting? So our story, and I call it a story because that's how we are addressing this through first-person narrative, um, it's not a journalistic, newsy kind of show. Uh, you know, it's me. I'm talking like me. I'm using lots of bad words. And I'm telling my brother's story. So I I skipped this part of it. Um, The first episode, I talk about my brother, Harris Whittles, who was not a normal person in more ways than Mm -hmm. one. Um, He uh, was an award-winning producer, comedian, actor. He played Harris, the animal control guy on Parks and Recreation. He was a producer on that show. He wrote for Emmy Award-winning Master of None. He invented the word humble brag. I am not Mm -hmm. even humbly bragging on him. I'm shamelessly bragging on him right now. Um, You know, he was extraordinary. And in addition to being extraordinary and my best friend, he was a person who had an addiction. The first episode really dives into his story, but then we move on from his story. And in the second episode, like you said, we go to a normal guy. Uh, His name is Stefano Cordova Jr., but he happens to be the brother of my partner, Jess. So Jess lost her brother, Stefano, in 2017 to a fentanyl overdose. We joined forces and we were like, hey, um, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to us. And it's happening to so many people. Uh, You know, we did like this sort of messy math where we thought, okay, if, you know, 72,000 people who are dying, each, each of them have what, like, Two parents, maybe three, maybe a spouse or a loved one, some siblings, some best friends. That's like 10 people, right? Like 10 people per person. That's a lot of people that are being affected by this. And so we really wanted to like humanize it and tell the story of who they were as people aside from their addictions. Um, And so you see like addiction sensationalized, I think, in the media. You know, you've got people who are it's either like these dateline you know, 60 minutes, like, doom, 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 you know, listen to the 
to the athlete who got hooked on OxyContin. And it's like very, um, you know, I don't know, sensationalized, I guess, is, is the way to go. And then you've got like or these, you know, people who are homeless living under a bridge. You know, you've got like sort of this side of it. And 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 all of that stuff is just noise. It's not real. It doesn't really address it from all sides. Um, and so we literally do walk through Stefano's last day from the moment he gets up. It's a super boring day. He goes to Starbucks. He hangs out with his wife. He goes to work. Uh, he has a meeting. He goes home. He gets um, in touch with his dealer. He uses and he dies. And his wife finds him when she gets home from her shift at 1030, 11 o'clock at night, dead in the bathroom. And, um, you know, this is a guy who, like you said, He's doing this webinar that I can't follow because it's like I, in this podcast, I call it Charlie Brown adult language. It's like, you know, <laughs> here's the sales strategy and blah, blah, blah. Uh, super smart guy has no bearing on whether or not he's going to be using, you know, like your level of intelligence and talent just doesn't doesn't matter here. Um, so we tell Stefano's story and and we zoom out to talk to First responders, um, ER doctors, addiction medicine specialists, uh, medically assisted treatment experts, harm reductionists, politicians, mayors, um, international um, people who are fighting this on an international level. We just keep zooming out and zooming out and zooming out. And I always say it's kind of like the wire. You know, you've got this one like massive issue and you're looking at it from every single angle um, to try to get an accurate depiction of what's really happening. Which one of those layers do you think, like, you learn the most about, even as someone personally affected, do you think gets missed most often in conversations about this and policymaking about this? Like, as you zoomed out, at what level did you get that you were like, oh, my gosh, I did not understand this at all? I think what's been so eye-opening is that at every single level, I'm, like, getting slapped in the face with with ahas, Mm -hmm. you know, and, like, I'm being assaulted by them. I think for me, just this this shift in my thinking that this truly is a disease of the brain and that with any kind of disease, um, let's just like talk about cancer, right? Um, there are so many things you have to do to put your cancer or to get your cancer to be in remission. So people who are working on addiction, you know, actively, they're not calling it um, – you know, I kept saying with this one guest in episode three, how did you beat it? How did you beat it? And he kept correcting me. He's like, I have not beat it. I'm in remission. You know, I haven't used for seven years. This is a guy with three doctoral degrees. Like he's truly, he is a behavioral pharmacologist. He knows everything there is to know about drugs. And he still was a person who shot heroin, you know, for much of his life. He just kept correcting me. He said, I have a disease that is currently in remission. Um, And it is in remission because I'm doing this and this and this and this and this. And that has been eye-opening, that it's not just one thing. People will argue, oh, AA is the best. Oh, Suboxone or medically assisted treatment is the best. Oh, this is the best. And it's all of it. Like you have to deal with it, you know, in your community. You have to deal with it physically. You have to deal with it mentally. Um, There are so many parts of it. And then you have to have money to address it, which is where the policy part comes in. So it really is something that, um, you know, there's this one like devastating episode we're going to be doing in a, f- in a few weeks about like the children of this crisis. Um, the foster care system is being maxed out because of this. Uh, you know, when a kid is removed from a home, where do they go? They go to foster care. 
what that does to those children. And then educationally, you've got kids who are born uh, addicted to opioids uh, or who are dealing with the emotional fallout of losing a parent to an opioid overdose. You know, this reporter told me that her teachers said there's kids who are reenacting overdoses on the playground at recess, you know, resuscitating their parents, um, seeing emergency people in their homes resuscitating their parents. So it's like it's everywhere. <laughs> and and I it's it, it is a massive problem. And I think that. The reason we wanted to do this show is because you hear a lot of people talking about it. Or like there's a podcast, right? They'll do a show like once about the opioid crisis. And like we say, it's sort of like a drive-by. But we like are doing a 26-episode deep dive on this. You know, there's so many aspects to it that need to be explored. What have you come to think about as the main reasons that we have this crisis? I feel like it's so hard to talk to people about where did this begin? What are you learning Mm -hmm. about that? I mean, the drug war has been happening for a long time, um, you know, since the 60s, you know, the 70s. I, re- I don't know if you remember in the 80s and 90s, uh, there was, um, you know, the war on drugs and uh, D.A.R.E. and just say um, no, just say no, <laughs> just say no you know, um, which obviously worked uh, not at all. Um, and so, you know, it's been going on for a long time. I think that that What's complicated? Oh, and then you've got, you know, of course, like being criminalization of drugs. So you've got people who um, are thrown in jail, disproportionately people of color. Um, You know, there's a lot of talk about how this is like a white epidemic. Um, That isn't necessarily the case. Um, It's sort of a fallacy. Uh, People of color are using. It's just that um, it looks different in each community. So like the crisis is going to look very different in like an urban Uh, context than it is in a rural one. And so when we say like it can affect anybody, we mean like it can affect anybody. It's an equal opportunity destroyer. Um, So I think that when doctors started overprescribing OxyContin, that that was a huge thing. Um, It's undeniable that uh, my brother, my brother and Jess's brother both got started by using Oxy. Um, When my brother finally told me he was addicted to opioids, he was spending $4,000 a month on pills. And that is, uh, you can't maintain that. So eventually he moved on to heroin. Um, so I think there's a lot in it that's there. But I think it's it's problematic to just be like, this is where it started, because its roots go so far back. I mean, you can look back to the 1800s. There's a great book called Dreamland that addresses the history of the opioid epidemic. Um, you know, and like the the inventor of the hypodermic needle, this was like in the 1800s, his wife died, you know, of an overdose. It's like wild. Um, so it has it has pretty deep roots, um, but it's gotten particularly messed up in the last 20 years. Stephanie, I I really love this podcast. I want to ask you because I feel like this is the orientation of a lot of our listeners. What can just a regular person be doing to help? Just a regular person who hears this and it tugs on their hearts and maybe they are or are not having this issue touch their families in this moment. But how can we be helpful? I think just tuning in, frankly, you know, like anything, having it on your radar, being aware, um, not saying like this is happening in someone else's backyard, 
but this is happening in my backyard because I am a person living in this country. <laughs> and so I think like opening yourself up to the fact that this is happening, uh, you can engage in harm reduction strategies. We get into harm reduction on episode seven of our show. Um, but there's like this overdose reversal agent called naloxone and it's a nasal spray. And um, if you, you know, work in a library, you go to a Starbucks, you go to any space where people are, um, you know, using public bathrooms, uh, you you might encounter an overdose. And if you administer naloxone, it we've had ER doctors say it's the most dramatic reversal they've ever seen in medicine. Literally, somebody goes from the verge of death to fully awake and alert. Um, so that's something you can do. Um, I think you can, like... Put it in your heart and in your soul that, again, this doesn't mean that the person who's using is a bad person. It's a person with a disease. And be on the front lines of being ready to discuss that and being ready to defend that to people who um, say terrible things. Like, I, I, I'm on the Internet. Um, sometimes it's good. Most times it's not. Uh, and I can't tell you the amount of times people have said, like, oh, your brother deserved to die. You know, he's a junkie. Anyone who puts a needle in their arm deserves to die. And the fact that we still have people, you know, thinking this way, uh, I, I would love for those people to tune in to the show and, and learn. Um, you know, and if you're a person who finds yourself either in a situation where you are personally affected with addiction or you love someone who is affected, there are steps you can take there as well. It does not have to be a fatal illness. Um, I think it's more of a chronic illness, but certainly not fatal. So... Um, we deep dive on this, uh, in this on the podcast, but, you know, find a board certified addiction medicine doctor in your area, um, get educated on medically assisted treatment, um, go to free AA meetings, hook up with a recovery community, um, you know, and, and just be kind to yourself and your loved ones, go to therapy, uh, go to Al-Anon. It's tough. It's a roller coaster. But I always say like people in this space, it's like, the worst club to be in, but there's the best people in it. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for putting yourself in the space where someone would say such terrible things to you. I, I'm thinking about one of the mothers of the movement at the DNC when she was talking about the loss of her son. She said, I'm still his mother, even mm. though he's not here. And it is very clear that you are still your brother's sister out in the world doing this work and telling his story. Thank you. That's so nice. I appreciate that. Thank you. We hate that you lost your brother and are grateful that you are engaging in this public service and this really beautiful expression of advocacy. So the podcast is Last Day from Lemonada Media, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stephanie Whittles-Wax, thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you to Stephanie for joining us and sharing her story and her new podcast. We will be back in your ears on Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major 
life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 